Section 15 of The Bible Under Trial. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr. The Bulwark of the Gospels, Parts 1 through 3. As mentioned in the last paper, the attack on the supernatural claims of Christ is conducted in part through an unsparing criticism of the Gospels. The Gospels are, besides, an offense in themselves through the miraculous elements they contain. Every means known to criticism, therefore, is employed to weaken their testimony. The Gospel of John is treated as a historical romance. The first three Gospels are discredited by separating them from their recognized authors and by an account of their origin, relations, and dependence on late and unreliable tradition which undermines all certainty in regard to them. Yet it is precisely here, I believe, that the attempts at an anti-supernaturalistic construction of the life of Jesus and of the beginnings of Christianity can be most successfully beaten off. The Gospels stand as a four-square bulwark upon which assault will be found to be in vain against all such endeavors. Many are of a very different opinion. They see the work of historical disintegration being actively pursued and appear to take it for granted that the task is already finished and that only inveterate prejudice can prevent anyone from acknowledging that the credit of the Gospels is hopelessly destroyed. This is a great illusion. I have already pointed out how, along with these disintegrating forces, other influences not less powerful are at work, tending to re-establish confidence in the trustworthiness of our records. I illustrated the complete breakdown of the older to begin theory of the Gospels and other New Testament writings. Yet more recently, there has come aid from unexpected quarters in restoring the credit of ancient tradition. It is ten years since Harnack declared in the preface to his work on old Christian literature that, I quote from Dr. Sanday, the results might be summed up by saying that the oldest literature of the church, in its main points and in most of its details, from the point of view of literary history, was voracious and trustworthy. In his recent book on Luke the Physician, Harnack reaffirms this opinion even more strongly. That book is itself a masterly vindication, in opposition to current tendencies, of the Lucan authorship of the Third Gospel and of the Acts. The Gospel of John has been most uncompromisingly assailed, when suddenly, as Dr. Sanday says, the air was cleared by the publication of Dr. Drummond's The Character and Authorship of the Fourth Gospel, a convincing defense of its genuineness, which, as coming from a Unitarian, could not be ascribed to theological bias. With Dr. Drummond's treatise has to be taken Dr. Stanton's valuable work, 
The Gospels as Historical Documents, Part 1, and Dr. Sande's own important volume, The Criticism of the Fourth Gospel. The remarkable thing in these and other works which have recently appeared is, in my opinion, not simply the evidence they afford of a change in the trend of critical judgment, but the trenchant way in which they assail the methods and principles by which, in the later periods, critical results have been reached. 1. It is not possible, in a brief paper, to enter with any minuteness into the complicated questions connected with the authorship and relations of the Gospels, but a few outlines may be traced, and some facts brought forward, which may help to show the strength of the evidence, by which the credibility of the Gospels is supported. A little may be said first on the general nature of the evidence, and on the principles which should guide us in judging of it. The manuscript evidence for the Gospels is, in comparison with that, say, for the classics, early and extraordinarily abundant. The existence of an ancient book, however, may be proved in many other ways than by possession of actual manuscripts of it. The existence of a book may be proved by references to it, quotations from it, or accounts of it, by catalogues, by early translations or versions, by controversies in which its principles are discussed. A very little evidence, if we are satisfied of its genuineness, is often sufficient to carry us a long way. An illustration may set this in a clearer light. In Macaulay's essay on the authoress Madame D'Arblay, who died in 1840, we have the following sentences. The news of her death carried the minds of men back at one leap over two generations to the time when her first literary triumphs were won. Since the appearance of her first work, 62 years had passed and this interval had been crowded not only with political but also with intellectual revolutions. We are further informed that this first work was called Evelina and was published in 1778. Now, few, probably of the readers of these pages, have ever before heard of Madame d'Arblay, and still fewer, I am sure, have either seen or read the book referred to. Yet no one, I think, would dream of doubting that this single reference in Lord Macaulay is amply sufficient evidence that such a book, bearing the name of Evelina, existed that Madame d'Arblay, then Frances Burney, was the author of it, and that it was published in or about 1778 now over a century and a quarter ago. Thus one step takes us back over that long interval, and we would accept with equal confidence Macaulay's testimony to a book of the time of the Puritans, or of the Reformation, or a work of poetry or theology from even earlier centuries. In fact, we seek, as a rule, no better proof of the genuineness of a work than the fact that it is and has 
always been received as a genuine work of the author to whom it is ascribed. Few persons doubt that the poems ascribed to Robert Burns are really his, or that Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, or that Charles Wesley composed the hymns that bear his name. Yet the chief ground which most of us have for these beliefs is that the works in question now are, and we understand, universally have been, attributed to the authors concerned with the impossibility of supposing that they could have been published and circulated, and have obtained this undisputed acceptance without the mistake or fraud being at the time or soon after detected and exposed. These are the ordinary principles we apply in judging of books, and it is only by bearing them in mind that we can fairly judge of the exceptional strength of the evidence which supports the four Gospels. Applying, then, this test of general reception, let the reader take a stand for a moment in the last quarter of the second century. An interval from the time of the composition of the Gospels shorter than from the publication of Madame d'Arblay's book to our own day. Plenty of literature has come down to us from that period, and in the clear light it casts on the conditions of the time, what do we find? The four Gospels, the four we have, and none else in universal circulation and undisputed use throughout the church unanimously ascribed to the author whose names they bear. Footnote. There is a slight exception in the obscure sect of the Loki who rejected the fourth gospel on dogmatic grounds. End of footnote. Circulating not only in their original tongues, but in Latin, Syriac, and other translations freely used not only by fathers of the church but by pagans and heretics, and by these also ascribed to the disciples of Christ as their authors. We find harmonies made of them, commentaries written on them, and catalogues of books drawn up in which they stand at the head, and all this with just as little doubt or trace of dissent as in the case of the works above named among ourselves. Footnote. I would invite attention, says Dr. Sandick, to the distribution of the evidence in this period. Irenaeus in the letter of the churches of Vienne and Lyon in Gaul, Heraclion in Italy, Tertullian at Carthage, Polycrates at Ephesus, Theophilus in Antioch, Tatian at Rome, and in Syria, Clement at Alexandria. The strategical positions are occupied, one might say, all over the empire. In the great majority of cases, there is not a hint of dissent. On the contrary, the fourfold gospel is regarded for the most part as one and indivisible. Fourth Gospel, page 238. End of footnote. 2. I take a few examples. The most representative names in the church in the last quarter of the second century are those of Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon in Gaul, Tertullian of Carthage, and Clement, head of the catechetical school in Alexandria, whom Origen succeeded a little later, 
203 AD. It is said that from the works of Origen alone, the New Testament, if lost, could nearly be reconstructed. But Origen, with all the others named, bears emphatic testimony to the universal acceptance, sole authority, and undisputed authorship of the four Gospels with which we are familiar. The testimony of such as Irenaeus is particularly valuable in that he not only conveys to us the witnesses of the church of his own day, but himself stood in a line of succession which reached back to the very days of the apostles. Irenaeus was brought up in Asia Minor and as a youth sat at the foot of Polycarp, the disciple of the apostle John. In later life, having gone to Gaul, he became Bishop of Lyon in succession to Pothinus, an old man whose life must have stretched back into the first century before the Apostle John died. To the end of his life, Irenaeus retained vivid recollections of the discourses of Polycarp and how he would describe his intercourse with John and with the rest who had seen the Lord and how he would relate their words. And whatsoever things he had heard from them about the Lord and about his miracles and about his teaching, Polycarp, as having received them from eyewitnesses of the life of the Word, would relate them altogether in accordance with the Scriptures. Footnote. This in a letter to a fellow disciple of Polycarp, Flornus, who had lapsed into Gnosticism. Referring to the vain efforts of critics to get rid of this testimony, Dr. Drummond says, Critics speak of Irenaeus as though he had fallen out of the moon, paid two or three visits to Polycarp's lecture room, and had never known anyone else. In fact, he must have known all sorts of men of all ages, both in the East and the West. Page 348 and a footnote. Is it conceivable that a man of this kind could have been deceived about the Gospel of John, of which his master Polycarp must have been able to tell him something, and the genuineness of which he himself unhesitatingly endorses? Leaving aside the testimony of lists and versions, I take an older instance. Early Christian writers inform us that Taishin, the disciple of Justin Martyr, wrote a work called the Diatessaron, a combination of four, and that this work, extant in their time, was a harmony of the four Gospels. The date of this work may have been about 170 A.D. It was pretty obvious that if a writer of that date was engaged in making a harmony of the four Gospels, these must already have had a long-established position and authority in the Church, and this was fatal to the theory of their late origin and unauthoritative character. Every attempt, therefore, was made to shake the force of this evidence from Tatian. It was attempted to be shown as by the author of Supernatural Religion, that no such book existed, or, if it did, that it was not a harmony of the Gospels, or, if it was a harmony, 
it was not of our four. This was held, though ancient writers testified that a well-known personage, Ephraim the Syrian, had written a commentary on the work. Thus the question stood till in 1876 a Latin translation of an Armenian version of the commentary of Ephraim was published, and in 1888 an Arabic translation of the Diatessaron itself was brought to light. Then it was found, what should never really have been doubted, that the famous Diatessaron was, after all, a blending of our four canonical Gospels. Tatian is likewise a witness to the fourth gospel in his earlier work, an address to the Greeks, circa 150 A.D. Tatian's master was Justin Martyr, one of the most important witnesses in the middle of the century. The works of this early writer embody in large part the history of the first three gospels and show acquaintance with the Gospel of John in numerous passages, as notably the following. For Christ also said, Unless ye be born again, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. But that it is impossible for those who are once born to enter into the wombs of those who brought them forth is evident to all. The quotation is free but one cannot mistake the reference to John chapter 3 verses 5 through 8. Nor does Justin leave us in any doubt as to the sources of his information. He tells us that he draws from Memoirs of the Apostles, which are called Gospels, composed by the Apostles and those that followed them. In them he found written all things concerning Jesus Christ. These memoirs were read, together with the writing of the prophets in the weekly meetings of the Christians. Is it possible to doubt that these are the same Gospels which Tatian combined in his harmony? But here they are already found in settled ecclesiastical use. I need only cite one other witness, Papias of Heropolis the first who mentions Matthew and Mark by name. His date may be 120 to 130 A.D., but Dr. Sande is disposed to carry back the extracts preserved from him to about 100 A.D. This would give them high authority indeed. That Papias knew the fourth gospel is rendered almost certain by his attested use of the first epistle of John but the extracts now in question, preserved by Eusebius, relate to the first and second Gospels. Papias had been on terms of intimacy with the immediate followers of the Apostles, possibly with John himself, and his object in the work from which the extracts are taken was to set down faithfully, along with his own interpretation, what he had learnt from the elders and those acquainted with them. There can be no doubt further that what Eusebius quotes from Papias about Matthew and Mark he takes to refer to our present Gospels. That indeed is plain on the face of it about Mark. There is a certain difficulty, as we shall immediately see, about Matthew, but as Eusebius had the work of Papias before him, 
The presumption is that he was right in his understanding about the first gospel also. The testimonies about Matthew and Mark, then in brief, are as respects Matthew, that he composed the oracles, Logia, in Hebrew, and each one interpreted them as he was able, and concerning Mark, that Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote accurately all that he remembered, though he did not record in order that which was either said or done by Christ. By Hebrew in the first passage is to be understood Aramaic. Both of the statements here made that Matthew wrote his gospel in Aramaic and that Mark wrote as the disciple and interpreter of Peter appear in all the subsequent tradition. Yet there is the difficulty that the only gospel of Matthew we know, the only one also in the hands of these fathers, is in Greek and bears no marks of being a translation. We have accordingly the two facts to face. First, that Matthew is said to have written his gospel in Aramaic, and second, that our Greek gospel is held by all the early writers to be virtually identical with this Aramaic work of Matthew. How this is to be cleared up will be considered after. The other statement as to the origin of Mark has every right to credence. Mark is, in substance, Peter's gospel. These are voices from within the church, but it is not different when we pass outside the church. Celsus, e.g., was a bitter opponent of Christianity, but he calls our Gospels the writings of the disciples of Christ, and urges against them the usual charges of contradiction and absurdity. Marcion, agnostic, earlier than Justin Martyr, used what all now acknowledge to be a mutilated version of Luke. The Ebionites, in like manner, used a mutilated version of Matthew. The Gnostics were specially fond of John, and one of them wrote a commentary on the Gospel. I spoke in an earlier paper of the use of John's Gospel by Basilides. See 125. I need not pursue this branch of the evidence further, for as regards dates, it is now admitted by all but extreme writers that our first three Gospels, the Synoptics, at any rate, fall well within the limits of the Apostolic Age. Harnack, e.g., whose dates are probably still too late, puts Mark's Gospel between 65 and 70 A.D. Matthew's between 70 and 75, Luke's between 78 and 93. Blass, representing a yet further return to tradition, puts the composition of Luke's gospel in 59 or 60. Even as regards authorship, we have found that Mark, Luke, and John are now being restored to their accredited authors and Matthew is allowed a substantial, if still insufficient, share in the composition of the gospel that bears his name. These are long strides towards the corroboration of the tradition of the church which Professor Foster, while rejecting it, thus correctly represents. According to tradition, two gospels are by Matthew and John, who were apostles, 
to others by disciples and companions of apostles, Mark, the companion of Peter, Luke, of Paul. 3. Thus far I have been dealing with external evidence. On that side I believe that the case for the Gospels is irrevocable. Even of the Gospel of John, the most contested of the four, Dr. Drummond permits himself to say at the conclusion of his inquiry, the external evidence, be it said with due respect for the elogi, is all on one side. Page 514. Now the question arises, does internal criticism confirm or overthrow these results? Truth being one, it would be strange if it did the latter. Yet, if we take up the books of any of our critics of the newer school, of a Schmeidel, a Vernley, a Foster, a Schmidt, we find that nothing less than this is their contention. The external evidence, in their view, has hardly the weight of a feather. The books themselves must be critically examined, and when that is done, their credit is gone. The supposition that John is the work of an apostle, or has any historical worth, is not to be entertained for a moment. The synoptic tradition is put into the crucible and is found to be in part gold, but largely also base alloy. Subjective weights and measures are employed to determine what is true and what false. Unfortunately, there is little real agreement in the results and one fails often to see why anything should be left at all. A few specimens, taken almost haphazard, may illustrate. Here is Bousset, that Jesus was directly indicated by John as Messiah, as the Christian tradition has it, we do not believe. Page 7 what was Jesus' object in collecting his band of disciples? Not, at any rate, to found a community or church. Page 60. The stereotyped way in which the synoptics represent Jesus as using the title Son of Man is not historical. There speaks not the earthly Jesus, but the dogmatic conviction of his followers page 193. Above all, he did not lay claim to the judgeship of the world. It is true that in the narratives of our Gospels the opposite seems to be the case, but it is inconceivable that Jesus should now have arrogated to himself the judgeship of the world in place of God, page 203. Foster, who closely follows Vernley, is ever on the track for motive. Mark has done much to parry this thrust, yet much too little to suit those who came after him. Luke cancels the mortal distress of Jesus in Gethsemane. Matthew removes every appearance of helplessness. Legions of angels were at his disposal, 
page 354. At the beginning of the Discourse on Righteousness, on Missions, on Pharisees, there are harsh national Jewish sentiments. Jesus, the fulfiller of the law, even to jot and tittle, etc. In these utterances, an exclusively Jewish party inimically disposed towards Paul and his work claims Jesus, page 378. The closing words concerning the last judgment do not come directly from Jesus. Jesus did not consider himself as the judge of the world, nor would he have said that all the Gentiles were judged solely according to whether they supported the itinerant Christian brothers or not. Page 381. The word to Peter, thou art Peter, etc., is not Christ's, but is a saga of a later time glorifying Peter. Page 381. Anne Schmidt goes further, denying the messiahship and the titles Son of Man, Son of God, altogether. The passage in Matthew chapter 11 verse 27, No one knoweth the Son, etc., on which Harnack founds, is rejected by this writer as a somewhat irrelevant statement that has the appearance of a gloss. No other passage in the Synoptic Gospels indicates that Jesus made the discovery that God is a Father, or conceived of his fatherhood in such a manner as to lead him to the conclusion that he alone stood to God in the relation of a true Son. Page 151. At Caesarea Philippi, where Busset and Foster see an avowal of Messiahship, Schmidt discerns a sharp rebuke to Peter for venturing to proclaim him the Messiah. Jesus charged his disciples not to say that he was the Messiah. He did not wish that men should believe in him as the Messiah and confess him as such. Page 277 Enough, the reader will probably say of this upside-down criticism, which can make anything of anything and cuts and carves till the Gospels are perforce made to speak the language the critic desires to hear from them. It is time to turn to the real problems of the relations of the Gospels which arise from a less prejudiced consideration of their contents. Have the Gospels any literary dependence on each other? The theory which finds acceptance at present is that Mark is an original gospel while Matthew and Luke depend on Mark and also on a second source, a collection of the sayings or discourses of Jesus, the Logia, of which the Apostle Matthew was the author. I cannot say that I feel satisfied with this now widely accepted two-source theory. I cannot readily believe that Luke would include an important gospel like Mark's among the attempts at a narrative which his own better-ordered gospel was to supersede, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. And while it is true that there is little in Mark's gospel not found in the other two, 
It is also the case that the language and style of narration in the latter are often quite different. The hypothesis of a logia, source common to Matthew and Luke, is likewise cumbered with great difficulties. The two Gospels often verbally agree in their reports of Christ's sayings, but in other places the language widely diverges. It is quite inexplicable why the same saying should be so differently reported if taken from the same document. Besides, the tradition is that Matthew wrote his Logia in Aramaic, while the source used by Matthew and Luke must be supposed to be in Greek. Chiefly, I feel difficulty with the theory about Matthew's Gospel. There is no good reason for supposing that the oracles, Logia, which Matthew is attested to have written, were only a collection of the Lord's sayings. B. Weiss and others seem to me to have established that it must have embraced narrative matter as well. Footnote. Schmidt appears to me to have reason on his side in his remarks on this point and in his remarks on the Logia theory generally, pages 219 to 220 and 227 to 228. He disputes the priority of Mark and makes Matthew the oldest of the Gospels, but, of course, in its present form, late, pages 223 and 227. End of footnote. If so, it can hardly have been other than our present gospel, as Eusebius and the other witnesses took it to be. The statement of Papias that Matthew wrote in Hebrew, Aramaic, must in that case have arisen, either one from a confusion with the related gospel of the Hebrews, which Papias may have mistakenly thought to be the original, or two, from some tradition of an older draft or sketch of the gospel in Aramaic, which the later Greek gospel of Matthew afterwards replaced. It is in itself highly probable that such notes would be made by Matthew at an early stage, and copies and translations of these, and of the teaching of the other apostles, may, as both Luke chapter 1 verse 1 and Papias hint, have been in circulation. It is difficult to see how otherwise so accurate and well-defined a circle of sayings and narratives could have been preserved. It is to be remembered in further elucidation of this common basis of the first three Gospels. 1 that for a considerable time the apostles labored together and taught in Jerusalem. 2. That Peter, as foremost spokesman and an energetic personality, would naturally impress his type upon the oral narratives of Christ's sayings and doings in the primitive community, the Mark type. 3. That Matthew's stores, in part written, would be the chief source for the sayings and longer discourses. 4. That the instruction imparted at Jerusalem or by the apostles and those taught by them during visits to the churches 
would everywhere be made the basis of careful catechetical teaching. 5. That records of all this, more or less fragmentary, would be early in circulation. This would readily explain the Petrine type of the common narrative tradition and the seeming dependence of Matthew without the necessity of supposing that one gospel copied from another or drew from a special logia source. This also, it seems to me, is precisely the process suggested by Luke's remarkable preface to his gospel, which furnishes in so interesting a way a glimpse into the mode of gospel composition in that early age. Luke is dealing, he tells us, with matters which were already fully established among Christians, the knowledge of which had been derived from eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, in which Theophilus had already been catechized, of which many had already taken in hand to draw up narratives regarding which the evangelist as having traced the course of all things accurately from the first, was able to give him certainty. Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 Could there be a much surer guarantee for the credibility of a narrative? Footnote It need not be said that all this which Luke tells us is perfectly compatible with his feeling that he was moved to do what he did by the Spirit of God and with his being conscious of the Spirit's guidance in his work. End of footnote. End of section 15.